All right, we are going to be in Mark 15, uh, beginning of verse 1. Before we do, I wanted to just give you a little quiz here. I want to share a couple of names with you and just see if you recognize any of these. If I say the name Cato Kalin, anybody recognize that name? Okay, a couple of folks. Let's try this one. Robert Shapiro. Anybody? Okay, okay. Some of you are starting to go, okay, I know where he's going with this. Last one, Lance Ito. Okay. Uh, and then if you're still wondering what in the world is he talking about, uh, maybe you'll recognize the famous argument, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Absolutely. So I am, of course, referring to the O.J. Simpson trial. It began with that car chase. I, I don't think I'll ever forget it. That white Bronco going down the California highways and byways. Um, that, of course, led to the trial where uh, Mr. Simpson was tried for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. And that was a spectacle that captured the world's attention. I, I don't know what this says about my generation, but I believe it kind of helped define my generation, um, that, that event, that trial, uh, watching the, this trial uh, take place on TV. And it shaped even today's culture because many point to that trial uh, as the springboard or a big piece of the wealth and fame of one Robert Kardashian. And you know that name from the last couple of decades, I'm sure, infamously perhaps. Now, don't be too concerned. We're not here to talk about uh, the O.J. Simpson trial here this morning, and uh, we're certainly not going to compare those proceedings to the trials that Jesus endured as he was on his way to the cross. But thinking about our passage today, I started to think about our society's fascination uh, with trials, with uh, legal drama, with justice. You heard justice uh, and, and, and uh, you know, the worth of people uh, in Rachel's report. So was justice done in the O.J. Simpson trial? That's a, a controversial question. That is not our concern today. Was justice done in the trials of Jesus? Well, no and yes. So I invite you to join me in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, and I would ask you to stand in honor of God's Word as I read it for us today. I do want to also remind you that you can find Mark chapter 15 on page 904 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. That's page 904 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word of your own at home, please take that copy with you today as our gift, and we will easily and gladly replace it. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 through 15. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas, who, in, who was in prison with rebels, who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them, as was his custom. Pilate asked, answered them, 
Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief, the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then do you want me, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after Jesus, after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, if you are looking for justice, don't go looking for it in the trial held by the Sanhedrin the evening of Monday, Thursday into the morning of Good Friday. It was actually the first of three trials that Jesus would endure on the way, on his way to the cross. Last Sunday, Jason covered that trial very, very well, and so we're not going to get into too much detail, but I would like to recap it for anyone who missed last Sunday's message to kind of keep pace with us here in the Gospel of Mark. The religious leaders who made up the Sanhedrin had been looking for any opportunity to take Jesus down for quite a while. This Pastor Jason mentioned, this was the culmination of so many things uh, that are developed in the Gospel of Mark. They tried trapping Jesus in hypothetical situations and found themselves with no real escape. They tried cornering Jesus in real-life conundrums and found themselves virtually hamstrung. Finally, a discontented follower from Jesus' own ranks made them an offer they couldn't refuse. For 30 pieces of silver... He'd lead the religious authorities to a time and a place where he knew Jesus would be without the cover of a crowd of onlookers. That would be their opportunity to strike. Mark's record of this trial was given in our passage last week, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. What was Jesus guilty of? Where was the evidence of his crimes? And why were the laws governing the conduct of such trials to ensure justice so blatantly ignored. Now, they didn't agree on much, but the Pharisees, the temple leadership, and even the despised Herodians could all agree Jesus had to go. Finally, the high priest asked the question in Psalm, in verse 61, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus' reply in verse 62, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That was it. They had finally gotten Jesus to say he claimed to be the Messiah. And if this was true, if Jesus was not God incarnate, then blasphemy had just been committed. And regardless of their previous failure to trump up charges against Jesus, they had him. But there was one problem presented by their apparent victory. They could not enforce the Jewish penalty for blasphemy, which is death. Israel was subject to Rome. They did not have the power of capital punishment for whatever crimes they deemed it worthy. And worse, Rome didn't care if some religious leader from Judea was running around claiming to be the Hebrew God. And as long as he didn't make trouble or claim to be a king competing with Caesar, hmm, That brings us to Mark 15, verse 1. 
this last phase of the Sanhedrin's trial was more like a sentencing hearing than an actual trial. I think uh, Pastor Jason called them a kangaroo court last week, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And the verdict that was known from the beginning was known from the beginning, and now they just needed to agree on what strategy to employ to get the Roman governor of the region to issue a death sentence. Since blasphemy was not even considered a crime by the Romans, they had to make the case that Jesus was a political threat to Rome, warranting crucifixion. Remember, this was Jesus' own people who were doing this to him. God's chosen people, plucked from obscurity, simply by the grace of God and not by any merit of their own. They were betraying their own God and their own blood. If you have ever known personal betrayal, betrayal yourself, if you've ever known rejection by those who should love you or undeserved condemnation, then please know Jesus is with you. He knows exactly how that feels. Jesus' trials, though, had just begun. Verses 2 through 5, we see that Jesus was then tried by those in power, or I should say power. Now that leads us to Pilate. He's mentioned there at the end of verse 1. We learn more about him here in this passage. So who was Pilate? Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea from approximately AD 26 to 36. At this time, Judea was an imperial province which means it was under the direct control of the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar. And it was administered by the governor's appointees. So he had direct control over the territories through political appointees like Pontius Pilate. His official title was prefect, a a fact that was confirmed by an inscription discovered in 1961. As prefect, Pilate was the personal representative of the emperor himself. The power and the might of one of the greatest empires in all of history was ready to crush you on his authority. According to historians like Josephus, he was a textbook politician, both pragmatic and opportunistic, and his priority was himself. And he took care of that priority by any means necessary. There were multiple incidents in Pilate's tenure that caused great consternation among the people, In some of those cases, Pilate was ruthless and oppressive. In fact, the first time we read his name in Luke is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verse 1, where we read about a group of Galileans he had killed. Most of the time, Pilate would act to appease the people and leaders of Judea out of fear that they would actually appeal to Caesar and bring him bad reports about his political appointee. But in many cases, he exercised his strength and power. In verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This is the first time Mark mentions this title. It's the first of six uses in this chapter alone. Of course, Mark is capitalizing on this as he brings his gospel to a close. The whole letter has been building up to this point where the reader is presented with Jesus as king, and we are confronted Uh, with this same question that Peter was given in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Who do you say I am? Pilate wasn't acknowledging Jesus as a legitimate king, but most likely this title was taken from the primary charge the chief priests had brought against Jesus. This was the charge they believed would stick and lead to Jesus' crucifixion. 
it's important that we notice both what Jesus says and what he didn't say. As far as what Jesus did say, he said, you say so. Now, this could be rendered, you have said so, or it is as you say. But this is the same answer that the other Gospels record Jesus saying uh, when he said, you say uh, that I am king. That would be the one difference in John's Gospel in chapter 18, verse 37. But clearly, Pilate took this answer as affirmative. And he ultimately chose to crucify Jesus under this charge of claiming to be a king rivaling Caesar. But then there's what Jesus didn't say. In all of the Gospels, a common thread in all the accounts of all these trials is how Jesus, how much Jesus didn't say. For much of each trial, he remained silent and did not defend himself against his accusers. In verse 5, we read that this amazes Pilate as much as it likely frustrated him, as all the Gospels record a sort of help-me-help-you undertone to Pilate's efforts to free Jesus. Jesus' silence was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 of his book, where he prophesied about a messianic figure known as the suffering servant. There in verse 7, it is written of Jesus, He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Now true, Jesus did speak at time during his trials, but what this prophecy is getting at is that it was purposeful and limited. He did not lash out or desperately defend himself in the hopes of avoiding certain death. There was no fear or panic in him. Oh, that Christians today would follow that example. Not just that one, of course, in all ways, but that example certainly. Pilate, hearing Jesus' answer, revealed his growing frustration with an accused man that he seems to interpret as being less than cooperative when he asked Jesus in verse 4, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But in Luke chapter 23, verse 2 It shows the chief priests boiling down their accusations to three items. They are convinced the Roman prefect will find serious enough to warrant death. In that verse, Luke writes, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man, one, misleading our nation, a vague charge that was really hardly a problem for Rome, two, opposing payments of taxes to Caesar, that was a blatant lie, and three, saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. To Pilate's amazement, Jesus doesn't answer those accusations, even though he could have done so. I have the word power in scare quotes on our slide today, because despite being paraded before those seen to be in power, the truth is that Jesus was still the one with the power. In the span of about 12 hours, Jesus was brought before the former high priest Annas, the current high priest, Caiaphas, Pilate a first time, Herod Antipas, who just wanted Jesus to perform tricks, and then Pilate a second time, and then finally, as we're about to see, the crowd. One of the most powerful truths we can take from this account is this. God never lost control of the situation. To the contrary, all was going according to plan. Now, brothers and sisters, We should take great comfort and encouragement from this. 
There is no scenario, no circumstance, no series of events, no campaign of persecution, nothing that can overcome the Lord our God and all those in Christ rest in his all-powerful protection. That's all right. I'll say amen. Paul wrote of this hope in Romans chapter 8. We're just going to read a couple of verses, but do yourself a favor. If you haven't read Romans 8 in a while, go back to the whole passage. This is verses 38 and 39 where Paul wrote, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There we go. Perhaps you have read those words before and found yourself, occasionally at least, questioning or doubting them. Really, you might think to yourself, nothing can separate me. There's there's no one I need fear or anything like that. If you're not sure about Paul, be certain in Christ who in John's account of this, these events had this exchange with Pilate in chapter 19, verse 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Please note, when Jesus said that to Pilate, he was saying that after he had been flogged. I'm not going to get into too much gory or graphic detail, but in case you're unfamiliar, in case the significance of that doesn't hit you as hard as it should, flogging was no slap on the wrist. The Romans first stripped the victim, tied his hand to a post above his head, and the whip, called a flagellum, was made of several pieces of leather leather, with pieces of bone and lead embedded near the ends. So there were strips of of leather off of that, and they would put bone and metal, basically, in, in the ends of it. And then two men, one on each side of the victim, usually did the flogging, taking turns, whipping over and over again. Unlike the Jews, who mercifully limited flogging to a maximum of 40 lashes, the Romans had no such limitation. It's not surprising that victims of Roman flogging seldom survived. Now, Jesus endured all of that and then looked the most powerful man in that part of the world in the eye and effectively said, my father is still in charge. Jesus' trials weren't over yet. He had been tried by his own. He had been tried by those in power. But there was one more trial to face. And this trial was before an authority we're more familiar with. We don't live in a theocracy where religious leaders have enforceable powers. We don't live in an empire with arbitrary power over life and death. But we do live in a world where the crowd, popular opinion, seems to hold court over most aspects of our lives. To put it into our parlance, Jesus was about to be canceled in the most severe manner possible. Now, all gospel accounts are in agreement. Pilate did not believe Jesus deserved 
death. But at the same time, we know that he was a pragmatic ruler who was always willing to sacrifice others on his own behalf, whether that was to increase his power or to preserve uh, himself. So it seemed as though Pilate was convinced the crowd would never abandon one of their own in favor of submitting to Caesar. In the remainder of our passage, we will find four questions that lead to the, lead to the sacrifice of the Son of God. So this, of course, is the trial by public opinion. And the first question we have to identify in that trial comes to us from verses 6 and 7. It was a question of identity. We're going to go through these, these quickly. All four Gospels claim that it was Pilate's custom to release a prisoner at the request of the people in the honor of Passover. And when you think about it, that was a very appropriate and clever uh, thing on his part. As ruthless as he could be, this prefect knew how to curry favor with the masses. And here enters Barabbas. Mark tells us that he was among a group of rebels who had apparently committed murder in the course of their revolt. It was very plausible that the two criminals who were crucified with Jesus were part of this group and that Barabbas was originally meant to hang on the cross between them. In Luke 23, verse 32, the word used to describe the two men on either side of Jesus uh, meant evildoer or bad guy in Greek. So they were not specifically thieves as we tend to think of them. More importantly, the name Barabbas breaks down to son of Abba. Not the Swedish pop group. We're not going to have any Mamma Mia references. But Abba was a common personal name, like Joe. Sorry, Joe, it's a great name. Uh, so this could have been, it could have been just something like son of a guy named Abba. Or it could have also been the son of the father. In that case, it would have likely referred to an honored rabbi. And that makes sense. If you, you may know that Jesus prohibited his followers from calling any man father because they already had a teacher, him. Now, all of this may bring Romans chapter 8, verse 15 to mind, which says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, or Daddy. They didn't realize it, and they probably wouldn't have believed it if they did. But Pilate and the chief priests may have put a profound choice before the people. Who should be released? Who should be crucified? Barabbas, the son of the father. And by the way, there are some variants of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, that suggest his first name could have been Jesus. So you had Jesus, the son of the father, or Jesus, the son of the Father. The contrast between the two could not have been more stark. One was willing to take the lives of others for the sake of his own cause. The other was willing to give his life for those of his enemies. And this brings us to a question of envy in verses 8 through 11. I find it so interesting to follow the insights of the gospel writers into Pilate's motives. When the people approached him to release a prisoner, according to his established custom, Pilate believed he had the perfect opportunity to both wash his hands of the affair and to have some fun at the expense 
of the wounded pride of the chief priests. Mark tells us in verse 10 that the reason Pilate kept using the title King of the Jews was to refer to Jesus, was to, to basically tweak the envy of the chief priests of Jesus. And even though he ha- was no fool and he could see through the chief priests' motives, Pilate miscalculated their ability to sway the crowd. His appeal to their common decency failed in favor of the envy-driven vengeance of the Sanhedrin. They simply could not take the chance of Jesus escaping this cross, so they stacked the odds in their favor by stirring up the crowd to prefer the infamous Barabbas over their rival. Next, we encounter a question of contempt in verses 12 and 13. Now we can feel Pilate's frustration really begin to grow. He refers to Jesus not as king of the Jews, but as the one you call the king of the Jews. First, Jesus won't give him the satisfaction of protesting his innocence. And now the crowd that he had counted on to provide sport with the chief priests thwarted that plan with a second call to crucify Jesus. Let's continue to recognize that justice wasn't on anyone's mind in this process. There were too many mixed motives and conflicts of interest and self-centered hearts to allow questions of justice to get in the way. Questions of justice have been drowned out by questions of envy and contempt, but there was one more question, and that was of innocence, found in verse 14. You could almost hear the growing exasperation in Pilate's voice. Justice may not have been of great concern to him, but injustice has a way of grating at us, especially if we thought we had the power to do something about the situation, and then it gets out of hand, as happened to Pilate here. If it wasn't a sense of justice, the combined accounts of Jesus' trials show that that Pilate was wrestling with a growing sense of dread. If you read the the same account in John's Gospel, he reports that when Pilate heard the Jews confess that Jesus had claimed to be the son of their deity, he was more afraid than ever. Matthew's gospel includes Pilate's receipt of a note from his wife, warning him to divest himself of the whole matter due to a terrible dream that she had about Jesus the night before. Now, for the third time, Pilate attempts to resist the crowd calling for Jesus' blood by asking them, what has he done wrong? Pilate believes Jesus is innocent, The people don't care. Notice they avoid his question, and they repeat their demand to crucify Jesus. You know how this goes, right? When you can't answer a question or you don't like your answer to a question, you try to ignore it or you detract, deflect away from it. This is what the crowd does. The court of public opinion demands the verdict. To avoid a riot and the risk of being recalled by Rome, Pilate issues the verdict of the chief priests and that the people desire. It wasn't just their verdict. As we noted earlier, human and satanic forces were not just running amok uh, with no one to control their evil. According to the New American Commentary, paradidomai, which is the Greek word Mark uses in verse 15, which is many times translated handed over, means or or carries with it both the idea of something sinister and evil and of something done 
in accordance with the will of God. So one word covering both things happening in the same exact event. You know, for human beings, hindsight is twenty twenty. God doesn't have that limitation. And we see that later, based on these true accounts of Jesus' trials, the Apostle Paul would, would write powerfully about the sovereignty of God. You see, as Jesus told Pilate, God was very much at work through those events. Simultaneously, they were progressing exactly as he preordained them to proceed through the actions chosen by the various participants, from Judas to Caiaphas to Pilate to the crowd. Listen, nothing is beyond the sovereignty and grace of God. By them, Jesus was enthroned on this cross. He wasn't just the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Paul picks up on this. He builds on this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I want you to think about the wonderful, powerful truths that Paul is sharing with us through this passage. Paul writes, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory, indeed. Only God could take what seemed to be the greatest miscarriage of justice in all of history and use it to achieve both justice against our sin by punishing his own sin for it, and mercy for that same sin by offering us the perfect righteousness of Christ in exchange so that we could become justified to enjoy God's presence forever. The chaos wasn't chaos at all. It was God working the plan. One last thing. Jesus endured all of this. The insults, the beatings, the crown of thorns driven into his skull, the flogging, the humiliation of being paraded through Jerusalem and then hung on a cross naked, the asphyxiation that his body succumbed to as he willingly gave up his spirit. He endured all of these things 
for you and for me, who he knew completely. Now, to me, this has been one of the most powerful truths about the suffering of Christ. He didn't suffer in ignorance. He knows us more completely than we know ourselves. Now, I point this out because we are used to living our lives thinking, man, others are not going to accept us. They're not going to love us if they really know us, right? If, if, if only everyone around me knew what was going through my mind right now, if, if, only, if, if only people knew what I had done in my past, then people wouldn't love or accept me. But please understand, Jesus knew you, knew all about you. He knows the future you and how you're going to sin in the future. And he willingly, knowingly went to the cross for you. We can't hide anything from Jesus He went through all of this, eyes wide open, to exactly who we are. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a level of love that I have never known outside my relationship with the Lord. I'm very well loved by my wife. I'm very well loved by my child. I'm very well loved by family and friends. But there is no one, no one in my life who loves me like Jesus. The Sanhedrin meant king of the Jews as a false charge to manipulate the Roman authority to do their dirty work. Pilate hung the title King of the Jews on the cross with Jesus as an insult to the pride of those religious leaders. Mark intended King of the Jews as just the beginning of the revelation of who Jesus really is. But that brings us to the crux of the matter. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your king? That brings us to three final questions. Do you believe that only Jesus can set us free? To be true, okay, if, if, if your answer is yes, for that to be true, this would require us to believe the bad news of the gospel. All that flogging that I was talking about earlier, the cross itself, all those other humiliations, Jesus went through all of that for your sin and for mine, that means, think about it, that means for every lustful thought, for every greed, every part of greed that builds up in our hearts, every act of selfishness, every unkind word, for all of those things, to enable you to walk into heaven in spite of those things on your record. Jesus willingly and knowingly endured all of these things. He did all of that. And do you think he would have done that if it wasn't totally and completely necessary? I've, I've heard that. You know, some folks will say, well, well, he was just our example. He was just, he was just showing us a good way, that kind of thing. And they deny that what he was actually doing was substituting himself for us. But that's the bad news of the gospel. We can't save ourselves. There is no one good. And in order to receive what God has done for us in Christ, we must first let go of or give up hope in ourselves. We are not the answer. We're the question. The high priests and the the members of the Sanhedrin, most of them at least, trusted in themselves. 
Their faith was in their law-keeping. It was in their own works. As descendants of Abraham, they saw themselves as inherently superior to everyone else. That's, that's the rest of us, the Gentiles. And if, you've co- if you have come to the end of yourself and seeing your hopeless condition, uh, you have turned to faith in Christ, that is, who he is and what he's done for us, then yes, Jesus is your king. Second question. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Pilate didn't know what to make of Jesus and became frightened that he might be who the Jews said he claimed to be, the Son of God, God incarnate. Remember, someone with Pilate's religious background and and cultural background was familiar with gods who would come down and take human form. This kind of confusion uh, nearly derailed Paul and Barnabas' mission to Lystra. The religious leaders refused to recognize their God incarnated in the person of the Messiah. The political leaders failed to acknowledge the superior power standing before them in the Christ. Why? Because doing so has dramatic, far-reaching consequences and implications. If Jesus is Savior, he is King. And if he is King, he alone deserves our love, and faithful obedience. That means our priorities, our passions, our lifestyles, our life choices, relationships, career goals, you name it. Every aspect of our lives now falls under a new authority and encompasses a new life we then enjoy in Christ. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for Him. Can you see why this wasn't appealing to those who tried Jesus? Can you see why it's not so appealing to many people around us today? Last question. Do you believe Jesus is worth walking away from the crowd? Like the crowd, our world tries to do anything with Jesus but call him king. They say Jesus can be our friend. Jesus is a good teacher. He's, he's a great model and an example for us. But none of those roles involve worshiping Jesus and surrendering our lives to him as the redeemer and divine king that he is in reality. Following Christ may indeed end up costing us a great deal, perhaps our lives. If Jesus is your king, then over time, your life will look different, sound different, be different. It will look more and more like his, like Jesus's. This is because those who follow Jesus as their king know there is nothing that the crowd or this world can offer that is better than life with the king. For that matter, there is no one else in your life, child, husband, wife, parent, coworkers, who will ever love you like Jesus does. And his love for you is forever.